Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Later in the program, College Park Mayor Bianca Motley-Broom discusses the state of her city during the COVID-19 pandemic. For our frontline workers, we did add hazard pay for them, our uh, public safety, public works professionals. However, we have to look at that moving forward into the next fiscal year because at this point, as a city, we haven't received any CARES Act funding. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. But first, an update on COVID-19 here in Georgia. And data from the State Department of Public Health indicates there are 71,095 Confirm COVID-19 cases here in the state. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,745. 10,457 are hospitalized. That, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Health. And at the time of this broadcast, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is getting ready to sign into law HB 426, the state's hate crime law. It goes into effect July 1st. Now, Governor Kemp was in Gwinnett County earlier today. He toured Liburn First Baptist Church, a local COVID-19 testing site, and he took a tour of the cutting board company in Norcross. Sam Whitehead, our WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, was there. He joins me now virtually from Liburn to share what happened. Sam, welcome to the program. And what did the governor have to say? Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I think the biggest news this morning is the governor said that he is not considering putting a pause on things opening back up here in Georgia, despite the fact that we've seen cases kind of steadily rise over the last few weeks. Now, this is something that governors in other states have decided to do um, as they've seen cases rise, I think most notably Texas, but the governor says that's a non-starter. He did say that some of the restrictions on places where people gather, specifically bars, would potentially stay in place for a lot longer, um, and that the shelter-in-place order for people in nursing homes and long-term care facilities would also likely be in place for some time. And then this, which I thought was pretty interesting, he said he is not considering a statewide policy on wearing masks. No mask mandate for now. He said he hadn't heard from any local officials um, asking for that, but that if they were to write him or call him, he would be open to at least having that conversation. And Sam, I'm curious, did the governor get a lot of questions regarding these decisions from folks like you in, in the media? He did. I was actually surprised at how long he talked to us, Rose. It has been probably about three weeks, um, if not a little more, since we have had a dedicated coronavirus update from the governor um, and the other people working on this problem with him, such as Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey. I would say he took questions for about half an hour. Everyone had a chance to get a few questions in. And honestly, it's been refreshing. I have certainly seen a lot of 
commotion, a lot of conversation on Twitter, where people are essentially saying, we're seeing these cases rise. When are we going to hear from the governor or Dr. Toomey about what's going on? Um, so at least today, we did get that opportunity, though, but we'll have to see when the next one of these is. Well, and something else that has taken place since the governor's last update, and this is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, and that is Gwinnett County, which now has 7,200 plus confirmed COVID-19 cases. This is the highest number of cases in the county in the state. What did Governor Kemp have to say about this? Well, so what Gwinnett County's approach really seems to be is two-pronged, testing and communicating. So the County Board of Health has two testing sites set up in Gwinnett, one in Lilburn where I am, the other in Lawrenceville. Uh, the health director here said there's also been a big push on messaging and messaging to Gwinnett County's non-white communities. Gwinnett is a majority minority county and there's a lot of people who might not necessarily be native English speakers here. So the health director said there's lots of outreach to, you know, mercados and coin laundries, places where you might expect these people to be. You want to reach them where they are. Um, so that's the big push it seems to be here. I think the thing to note, Rose, too, is that while Gwinnett County has seen a surge in cases over the recent weeks, epidemics are not homogenous, right? So mm -hmm. Gwinnett County is seeing a big spike here, but we have other parts of the state where activity is actually relatively low uh, compared to what we're seeing here. Wow. Meanwhile, also according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, Sam, the number of people hospitalized with the virus it's been steadily rising since the beginning of June, despite what we consider progress in April and throughout May. Any idea why we're seeing this? Are officials willing to admit it could be due to when the state started to reopen for business? So are officials concerned? So I asked the governor directly about this this morning. We have some regions of the state that only have a handful of critical care beds left. These are beds where they would put the sickest patients. Uh, the governor reiterated today a message he put out earlier this week. He says hospitalizations look good. He says he's having regular calls with hospital administrators all over the state. And he at this point is not concerned. Again, today he reiterated something he said multiple times as the state has reopened. The point of the shutdown, he argues, was to prepare our hospitals for a potential second surge. So his argument, which he is still standing by, seems to be that if we do see these cases continue to rise, if we do continue to see more hospitalizations, at least we're better prepared to handle it than we were the first time around. And that was something he doubled down on in the video that he released via Twitter earlier this week. Now, Sam, it's easy to get bogged down by all of these statistics, but based on your conversations with epidemiologists and public health professionals, which numbers should we all be focusing on right now? That's a great question, Rose. There are lots of numbers. It's really easy to get confused. I've been working on a story this week kind of asking that question, which numbers are the most meaningful. Um, the kind of broad consensus I've gotten are you really want to look at your case numbers locally. Like I mentioned, just because there's an outbreak in one part of the state doesn't mean that the, you know, another part of the state is seeing the same kind of activity. And you want to look at how that number has changed over time. You want to look at that trend. Are those numbers going up? Are they going down? Mm -hmm. How fast are they going up? How fast are they going down? So that's an important number to watch. The other important number uh, to watch seems to be hospitalizations. This is a number that doesn't give us like a snapshot of what's happening on the ground right now. Mm -hmm. But what it does tell us is a little bit about who is getting sick. 
and the pressure that those people are potentially putting on our healthcare system. You have to remember that in the early days of the pandemic, there was lots of fear about hospitals being overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see that in some parts of the country. I think in Houston, hospitals have had to start turning away patients um, who were for elective procedures because they're dealing with so many COVID patients. And so by tracking how many people are being hospitalized, not only can we see how many people are getting sick enough to need hospital care, but also whether our hospitals have enough space to care mm -hmm. for them and all the other people getting sick and getting in car crashes, right, who might need hospital care. Well, and there's another population that I want to talk about for a moment, because this week on your podcast, you focused in on how the pandemic is playing out in Georgia's correctional facilities. And you spoke with Dr. Ann Spaulding, who studies healthcare in jails and prisons at Emory University. Let's give our listeners a little sneak peek. We ought to be trying to get at a point where COVID transmission is zero in our state. And by not putting the resources into jails and prisons, I don't see how we're going to make it. Yeah, Sam, you know, obviously anyone says, listen, how do you implement social distancing measures, guidelines in a correctional facility? Uh, did she have anything to add in terms of why are we seeing these numbers these these high numbers and throughout the state. Well, sure. And I th it's important just to think about how much of a perfect environment any kind of correctional facility is for a virus. Like you mentioned, there's lots of people in very close quarters, and those are places where viruses, highly infectious viruses, can can, can really thrive. You know, what, what we are seeing here in Georgia is not necessarily really big spikes in correctional facilities. I wouldn't say that we have any prisons or jails here that seem to be driving outbreaks like they are in other parts of the country. Um, if you think about what's happening in, in Illinois, for example, there was one study that found upwards of 15% of all cases in the entire state of Illinois could be traced back to the Cook County Correctional Facility. Mm -hmm. So this is a jail in Chicago mm -hmm. originating 15% of all the cases in the state, which is just insane to think about. And I think that is since it's such an important message it's easy to think that just because someone is in a correctional facility, a jail or a prison, that they're not going to someday get out. People don't stay in jail for that long. And people in prisons do get out of prisons and you have people working there, too. Mm -hmm. And so these kinds of really, you know, Petri dishes for this virus are not isolated. And they really could, as Dr. Spaulding told me in this podcast, really could keep outbreaks burning when maybe in the rest of the community you've, you've done a good job to suppress them. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm joined by Sam Whitehead. He's our WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Now, Sam, there's another population that we got to talk about. I call them young folk. People call them young people. Uh, Grady Health System reports that younger adults, those in their 20s and 30s, now make up the highest percentage of new cases. And do we know why these young folks are being hit so hard? You know, um, I will say as a millennial, I'm, I'm not here for any millennial bashing, mm -hmm. but um, there is kind of broad consensus at both, you know, the state and national level that young people are the people getting sick right now. It is really hard, Rose, to know why that is. Uh, public health officials and experts seem to think it's a, a few things. You have more young people getting tested now than who were at the start of the pandemic when you think testing resources were limited and really only the sickest people among us were getting tested. But there's also a sense that there is more transmission out there as states like Georgia start to reopen bars and restaurants mm -hmm. and people are just out more generally, say at a protest. Uh, but again, it's hard to pin one reason 
on why we're seeing so many young people getting in infected. Um, I, I think what's notable about this is you, you might think, okay, well, a young person, they're less likely to, to have some kind of severe outcome when it comes to a, a disease like COVID-19. But what happened this week is the CDC actually revised it's kind of definitions for who is most at risk to get severely ill. And what they did with age is previously they're saying, well, if you're over 65, then you're in the most at risk group. But what the agency is saying now is that the older you are, the higher your risk, even if you're, say, in your 40s or 50s, someone in their 30s would be at higher risk than someone in their 20s. So just because you're young doesn't mean that this isn't a virus that could potentially make you very, very sick. And some other news. Well, there's been all kinds of news this week. But in a press call yesterday, Dr. Robert Redfield, who leads the CDC in prevention right here in Atlanta, uh, he had this to say. I think it's important uh, for us to realize that we probably recognized about 10 percent of the outbreak by the methods that were used to diagnose it between uh, March, April and May. Now, the headlines today, starting yesterday, read that. The actual number of cases could be 10 times higher than the number suggests. Is that what he said, Sam? Yeah, and it's really striking to hear this finally come from the mouth of our nation's top public health official. You know, the kinds of data modelers and epidemiologists I've been talking to for the last few months have re really reiterated that we were not detecting all the cases out there in the world. But to get this number, this estimate that at least we were only catching about 10% of all cases, which means the numbers here in the country of people who are infected could be somewhere upwards of like 23 million. That's kind of nuts to think that our surveillance of this virus was so limited that it missed this much. Um, so yeah, the, the headline saying that the number of infections that have already happened are likely 10 times higher than the numbers that people are seeing, that's that is right. It's important to know, though, that there are regional variations in that. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you can necessarily take Georgia's numbers and multiply them by 10 and say, oh, that's how many people have had this yeah. virus in Georgia. But I also think while these numbers do seem kind of staggering, it's also important to remember that even if we're undercounting by a factor of 10, that still leaves upwards of 90 percent of the entire U.S. population vulnerable to this disease as states continue to reopen. So yes, there's this news about us missing a lot of cases, but that doesn't mean there's still not the potential for a lot more people to get sick. Well, and Dr. Redfield also mentioned this week in this congressional hearing, concerns this fall's flu season could complicate COVID-19 as if we need anything else, Sam. As if we need anything else. And, and the real message from Dr. Redfield was if, if you've ever been hesitant about getting the flu vaccine, this is the year to do it because you could either save your life by not getting seriously ill from the flu. But if you get sick and you need hospitalization from the flu, you're potentially going to take up a bed that a COVID patient needs, right? So there's this fear out there among public health officials that if we have these two highly contagious respiratory viruses circulating at the same time later on this year, not only are lots of people potentially going to get very, very ill, we don't know what it would mean for someone to get the flu and get COVID, right? We could have mm -hmm. some of this like a dual infection situation, but also what it means for our healthcare system, which again is the big concern here. If you get sick, does your local hospital have a place to take care of you? And so that really seems to be the concern as we approach flu season, which again, is not that far off. It starts uh, September, October generally, mm -hmm. um, that our, we just don't have the capacity to care for everyone who could get sick.
Well, Sam, let's try to end on some good news. The U.S. Department of Health and Human (laughs) Services is awarding the Morehouse School of Medicine $40 million to lead COVID-19 research. This also was announced in a congressional hearing this week. This specific award is to have Morehouse lead a consortium of organizations like 100 Black Men, UDUNOS U.S., the National Association of Community Health Workers, uh, the National Council of Urban Indian Health, et cetera, et cetera, to really focus on the specific educational testing and linkage to care needs of underserved minorities and some of those also in the rural population. My personal opinion is $40 million is a start. It's going to need to be a lot more than that in order to reach the people that we need to reach. Now, that was Admiral Brett Girard, who is the Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That is significant especially for an institution like the Morehouse School of Medicine, given their mission is to serve, is to train those future doctors, medical practitioners to work specifically in those underserved communities. This is good for them, obviously, Sam. Sure. And it's no secret by now that COVID does not affect everyone the same way. We have more and more data rolling in it seems week by week about how minority communities are disproportionately affected by this disease. And when they get it, their outcomes tend to be worse. So the real idea behind this kind of Morehouse project is that not that Morehouse is necessarily going to be like boots on the ground, Mm -hmm. but that Morehouse is going to be like a nerve center connecting all these community organizations around the country that work in minority communities and in rural areas, which have you know less access to healthcare generally, to make sure that people who live there have good information and have good access to healthcare. And so, as Admiral Giroir said, you know this forty million dollars he thinks is a start. I think it's important to note that the first kind of disbursement of money for this three-year project is going to come out in July. That's only fifteen million dollars for this first shot. So we really will have to see as the conversations continue about who this disease is affecting disproportionately, whether or not there's any more federal investment to serve these populations. Mm. Sam Whitehead is WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast. Did you wash your hands? Sam, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Our listeners appreciate it. I know because they send me emails. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Rose. Always a pleasure. Take care now. Now, in other health news, Saturday is National HIV Testing Day, first observed back on June 27, 1995. It's a day to encourage people to get tested for HIV, uh, know their status, and get linked to care and treatment. Here in the Atlanta area, free testing will be available at the nonprofit thrift store Out of the Closet, which is located at 1858 Cheshire Bridge Road from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now. You're on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
a pandemic, protests, and the usual politics that come with being an elected official. These are just a few of the issues College Park Mayor Bianca Motley-Broom has encountered during her first six months in office. You may recall I spoke to her earlier this year, shortly after she won College Park's first mayoral election in a runoff race. There was also this huge sense of gratitude because our runoff numbers were significantly higher than we expected. We got Mm -hmm. about 1,850 people Mm -hmm. who came for the general election and about 1,450, 1,475 who came for the runoff. So there really wasn't that much of a Mm drop-off. So that said to me, people were engaged, they were excited, and they were passionate about moving our city forward. So it was very humbling, and I'm so excited to get to work, probably not on the phones um, (laughs) for the next day and a half or so, but um, I'm really excited to just start working for the people of College Park. That was then Mayor-Elect of College Park, Bianca Motley-Broom, back in December. She now joins me with a much healthier voice (laughs) to to discuss the current state of her city, and this time with a focus on the city's public schools and students. You'll hear why in just a moment. Mayor Motley-Broom, welcome back to the program. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be back with 100% of my voice. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, there is no playbook that I know of for any mayor in this world that can deal with a pandemic through your lens. What do you make of this? It's extraordinary time. It's certainly been uh, a learning curve that I did not anticipate, but what I've done is I've done my best to work with the other mayors in the area because they've been a huge resource to me as I've been learning on the job almost on a minute by minute basis, because the information that we receive and uh, the, just the situation is so fluid. We, we, We are making determinations about how we run this city on the fly at points, because as we're looking at data points that let us know where we are in this pandemic and how our state and our federal partners are reacting, it, it changes how we react. So I've, I've been in close contact with the mayors of the South Fulton region and into Clayton County as well, because College Park is in both Fulton and Clayton counties, mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that we're doing what's best, not only for our residents, but the region as a whole. And as of right now, is the city of College Park, are you in a rephasing process for reopening? Where are you right now? We are. We are on a modified reopening we have appointments available to go into city hall Uh, all of our employees who can work from home are still continuing to do so and they will do that for however long at this point Uh, we're not really putting a timetable on it until it's safe Uh, we are making sure that people who enter city hall have temperature checks they have masks and they are there to do their business and leave uh, so far, we haven't had any issues. We've been, we've been doing this for the past couple of weeks, haven't had anyone with the temperature yet, but we are still employing these measures to make sure that everyone is as safe as possible. Have you been keeping track of the number of confirmed cases? And we know the number of confirmed cases, obviously, in Fulton County. Are you keeping track of what's happening in your zip codes? Absolutely. I think it's, it, it's my job to do that. Uh, we had we have one long-term care facility in the city mm-hmm. and unfortunately they have been hit pretty hard by this and it's something that i've kept an eye on because certainly any of our residents no matter where they are deserve the 
the utmost care and and consideration as we move forward. Um, overall, um, with with that long term care facility aside, um, the numbers per capita are are fairly stable. And what about your essential workers here in the city of Atlanta? Uh, the mayor has implemented uh, some financial bonuses, if you will, or, or, or stipend. Are you all able to do that, or have you all been talking about that? Oh, we we did do that mm-hmm. for our frontline workers. Uh, we did add hazard pay for them, our uh, public safety, public works professionals, and we think it was an important step to make sure that that we were appreciative of their of their sacrifices during this pandemic. However, uh, we we have to look at that moving forward into the next fiscal year because at this point, as a city, we haven't received uh, any CARES Act funding. Why? Municipalities under 500,000 uh, haven't received any direct funding yet. Uh, really? So, really, really, <laughs> really. I don't think a lot yes. of people know that. I didn't know that, no. which no. may not mean anything, but. Um, the city of Atlanta, um, all the counties, uh, including Fulton, Cobb, DeKalb, Gwinnett, uh, that have populations over 500,000 received direct funding, as did the state. So we're still waiting to see what the state will do uh, in terms of distributing funds to cities, but none of that's actually happened yet. We got together with uh, the mayors in the South Fulton region to ask Fulton County for a portion, and they have agreed to about $2.5 million of the $104 million they received to be distributed to the 14 cities inside Fulton County that are not Atlanta. Uh, And it's not uh, not an an equal distribution. It's based upon the COVID related funding that we've had since from March to May. Uh, So we are eligible for a certain amount of money, but we haven't actually received any yet. That's certainly a consideration as we move forward with with just about anything we're doing. Well, Madam Mayor, how much have you all had to spend as relates to the the pandemic? It's a complicated question. We we have suspended utility service, uh, utility turnoffs, uh, because that's just the right thing to do in in this in this circumstance so our our rearages on utility bills are north of a million dollars right now so maybe a better question would have been how much are you losing in revenue then oh that's a <laughs> that's an even deeper question because uh our city unlike a lot of others is, is highly dependent on tourism and hospitality mm-hmm. we have over 30 hotels in the city of college park so uh when we looked at our April hotel tax revenues, uh, we had about $122,000 in in April. And just by comparison, in April of 2019 and 2018, we got a little over a million dollars each month. That is a drastic, drastic change. Absolutely. Speaking of the pandemic, let's talk about the effect that might have had on this recent uh, election here within Georgia's primary. You talked about the voter turnout in College Park in the clip that we play coming into this segment. As you know, this past election, there was a lot of issues. Um, How would you assess what College Park, how would you assess what you all went through down there in College Park? I was disappointed. Yeah. I was disappointed for the people who had to sit in line. Uh, the last Friday of early voting, some folks got there at about 6.30 that evening with the polls closing at 7 and didn't leave until after 2 a.m. That's unacceptable. 
I, I went out there to check to see if people were still there around 1130, hoping that I didn't see a line, but there were about 75 people who were still waiting at that point. And we have to be better than that. We have to. Our democracy depends on it. Our, um, our police chief called me earlier that day to tell me that in the, in the midst of all of that, with people waiting with a line stretched around the block, workers came in and actually started renovating the bathroom in the library so it was unusable. And that's where people were voting with the College Park Library. So we had to keep City Hall open so people just had some place to go for comfort breaks. And the lack of communication, the lack of accessibility for uh, our our citizens to this right that is so vitally important was absolutely unacceptable. I, I want to be able to to offer some solutions because, as you know, we have the second largest convention center in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also built an arena last year that opened in the fall, and so I'm going to be working with some of our staff to see if we might be able to work with the county to see if there are any solutions that may work in that regard. It may not work out, but I think we need to make sure that for these next three elections, and we have to think of it as three, August, November, and our January runoff, like we're not done until January. So we've got to be thinking about how we ensure that every person not only has the right to vote, but that it's easy for them. It shouldn't be that hard. Fulton County Chairman Rob Pitts has convened the task force. Is there someone from your region? Are you, well, you're not on the task force, but I'm not. Have you reached out to the county about all of this? I have talked with our commissioner about, uh, our District 6 commissioner, about some of the issues that I saw on my end in College Park. I would anticipate that the that the conversations will keep on going as we as we get closer to to these upcoming elections because we we can't afford to get this wrong the voice you hear is college park mayor bianca motley broom we're talking about how the city is responding to the coronavirus pandemic protests also voting challenges during her first six months as mayor let's turn to the public schools in in college park because you penned a letter to the fulton county school system advocating for title one schools to receive additional federal COVID 19 funding why I thought it was important that the Title I schools see direct funding from, from the CARES Act money that Fulton County has received. Uh, They're getting about $18 million. And the number of children who are Title I eligible was the reason that they got that money. Our children are good enough for the count. And I thought they're good enough for the expenditure as well. Uh, it's not the way that Fulton County has decided to spend the money. But I still think that it is vitally important that we make sure that kids in Title I schools are prepared to learn as soon as the school year starts. We know that they are going to have additional challenges. We know that they are more likely to face housing insecurity, food insecurity, traumas, things of that nature. And I think it's up to the school board to make sure that we have the support in place to ensure that they that those issues don't lead to obstacles in learning. We don't have an opportunity to get a do-over with a third grader who can't read. We know that third graders who are passed on and can't read end up with 
outcomes that are less desirable as adults. They're more likely to be incarcerated. They're more likely, they're less likely to finish high school. So we need to put the money in now to make sure that these kids are ready to learn and that they're able to learn as soon as school starts. But if, if Fulton County Schools receive the funding for, because of the, the numbers for Title One, someone listening says, well, it would make sense that they would go towards those students. I mean, that's what the whole Title One program is about. It's to help extra support for those students who may be identified as failing or at risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. The federal government did not require that in the CARES Act. There's about, there are about 12 different ways the money can be spent, but it is, uh, it is based upon our, our Title One count. And I thought it only fair that Title One kids and the schools that they attend get some of that money. But I, I understand the district's position in that this is a huge, uh, they are facing huge de- deficits from uh, state and local revenue as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they wanted to make sure that they were filling those gaps. But we're looking at a school system that has done very well in terms of having a reserve. Uh, as of July 1st, 2020, their fund balance is going to be about $231 million. Now, in the response that Closer Look received, we received the response from Fulton County School CFO Marvin DeReef Jr. And in the response to you, he writes that the money that you are, that this money is not Title I funds. He writes, CARES Act funds, as you recognize in your letter to the Board of Education, are not Title I funds. Therefore, as allowed by the state and federal guidance, we plan to use $15 million of the funds to restore some of the FY21 budget reductions due to the decreased state and local revenue. So when you read that part, what was your reaction? It's not good enough to get us where we were in January when they were thinking about a budget. We know these kids are going to have bigger challenges to get to the same point as some of their better resource peers. And we, we, can, we can wait a year as a city to buy a car, right? It doesn't, you know, we can see how things look in the next fiscal year, but we can't wait to, to get through halfway through the year to figure out that a child is a full grade behind. Mm-hmm. We've got to have the resources in place when kids start school to make sure that they are supported and that they are in the best environment to learn. Madam Mayor, how many schools in the city of College Park are we talking about here that will be identified as a Title I school or have a percentage of Title I students? Would it be majority of them? All, all of our schools in, in College Park are Title I schools. But this is not just a College Park issue. Sure. There are Title I schools across the county. There are Title I schools in Sandy Springs. There, uh, most of the Title I schools are south of I-20. Mm-hmm. But I, I did not send the letter to Fulton County schools just for kids in College Park. Mm-hmm. To me, this is an issue of all of our kids having the support that they need to learn and to thrive. And we simply, we can't wait. We can't, we can't get to the point where we figure out in October or November that we've got a child who, who's so far behind that they, that they won't possibly catch up. In this letter also, the CFO cites, additionally, we were informed that $2 million of our CARES Act funds must be set aside for private schools 
operating within our jurisdiction. What do you make of that? That's a decision the Secretary of Education made. Uh, it's it's not one that that I agree with, uh, but it's one I have to live with. I understand that that the schools are the Fulton County Schools doesn't really have much control over that, uh, but I do think that they have the ability at this point to support kids in Title I schools. We know, for for instance, I had neighbors tell me that uh, kids who had to do online work, uh, say coming from College Park Elementary, uh, didn't necessarily have all of the resources to do that. Uh, companies like Xfinity offered reduced rates mm-hmm. for, for at-home internet, but when that program first started, people who had balances weren't entitled to participate in that program. Because they had already owed money? Exactly, exactly. I think they cleared that up a couple of weeks later, but that's still weeks that kids aren't learning. They don't have the access that their peers do. So we know that there are going to be problems with that. And in the 30337 zip code, which encompasses a lot of College Park, we are one of the highest rates of eviction in the entire county. So we know as evictions start back up again, it's going to disproportionately affect our students. We need them to have the resources to be able to learn, to get past the challenges that may be happening outside the classroom to make sure that they can still thrive. Madam Mayor, what concerns do you have for these students if they aren't able to get this funding, particularly with the school year beginning to start, whether it's in classroom or virtually in a few months? that eventually we're going to end up with kids that are not at the level where they should be learning, that we might end up with increased dropouts later on, um, increased incarcerations. We want people who are going to graduate from Fulton County Schools, contribute to our communities, and in a sort of Oprahism, live their best life, right? I mean, that's what we, that's what we should all want as a community. Mm-hmm. And we know that that they're going to need additional help doing that. But they've chosen in their FY21 budget to add about $230,000 for pupil services, which includes guidance, counseling, et cetera. And they're increasing their support services in the central office by $7.8 million. Uh, that's you know public relations activities, data processing, personnel services. So the money is available, the money is there. They've got over $200 million in reserves. And I understand that they need to be fiscally conservative, especially at this uncertain time. But we know these kids are going to need extra resources. We just have to meet them where they are. And as we wrap up, Mayor, I'd like to also get your thoughts on something else, obviously, that's that's gripping the entire nation amid protests, calls for defunding police departments. What do you make of all this and how would you assess the morale of the police department in your city? I was just talking with our chief and our deputy chief last week. We're planning a number of community conversations because I think it's important that the citizens have a better connection to our police and understand. I don't necessarily think it's an us versus them thing. The police are part of our community. They, they are where we live. And we want to make sure that when you call the police, that you're treated with respect and dignity every single time, no matter 
where you are in the city. And I think by and large, our law, our officers do a great job of that. Uh, but there's always room to improve. And I think there's always room to provide extra resources. One of the things that I was talking about with my chief was we are asking officers to do so much. Uh, if someone is experiencing homelessness, we're calling 911. If someone's experiencing a mental health episode, we're calling 911 and officers are arriving. So if we can work to get people who are specially trained in the particular areas that a call needs, I think that helps everyone because we are, we are asking so much that I'm not sure I could do it. I mean, I, I know I'm going to call 911 if, if there's a shootout and expect an officer to come, mm -hmm. right? But um, I think it's, I think the conversation has to be had amongst the people in our community. And so I'm looking forward to that. We're going to do at least two, and we hope that it's going to, to kick off some action uh, because there are so many people who want to be engaged in this conversation right now because the moment, the moment calls for this. It calls for action. It calls for emotion. If you're if you're not outraged by some of the things that have been going on in the last few weeks, then I, I don't know. But it it's a it's a moment for the entire country. And I hope in College Park it will move us closer to that community that we deserve. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked about those first six months in office. Can you even begin to talk about where you want to be in the next six months? with so much that's going on or you just take oh, gosh it? I think a lot depends on how the COVID-19 pandemic plays out mm -hmm. we you know I, I look at the the data on a daily basis and things are not trending in the right direction in Georgia right now uh, I know that the people who are getting the the disease at this point are trending a little bit younger which is good in one point good at one hand because they uh it means statistically that they'll probably have fewer complications but it also means that they're probably more likely to be an asymptomatic individual who might be carrying it to someone who would have complications so uh depending on how that goes uh whether we get a vaccine um uh, that that makes a big difference in in how we look at our future in College Park. As I said, we are so tied to tourism and hospitality. As I said, we have also have the second largest convention center in the state. So when can we start welcoming people back and, and having full scale events? The Atlanta Dream was going to play in our arena this season. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now they're going to be down in Florida, perhaps. I'm not sure if Florida is having their own issues right now as well. So, Gosh, the next six months, let, let's let's just work on the next six days. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Did Georgia open up too soon? I don't know. I think only time will tell. I, I think we have an opportunity. I, people have gotten a little lax. We were doing well at first when we opened up. And we were bucking the national trend of opening and then and then seeing a spike. But it's hard for people to have that sustained focus on something that's invisible. And, um, you know, it's it's difficult when you when you're just running about your daily life to think about that mask and, and be vigilant about hand sanitizing and, and washing your hands. I mean, we've been in this 
for over three months now. Mm -hmm. So I get that people are fatigued, but it's not done. Clearly, the data shows it's not done. And we have to do our part as individuals to make sure that we are not only protecting ourselves, but protecting those around us. I have a 92-year-old grandmother. I, I, the last thing I want to do is see her taken out by COVID. I mean, she's lived through almost everything. And so when I take precautions, I think about her. And everyone, I think, has someone in their lives who's important to them, who's uh, an older uh, American. And we have to think about them as, as we protect ourselves. College Park Mayor Bianca Motley-Broom, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. There are a lot of stories coming out of this pandemic, and you're about to hear one regarding Derek Blanks. Now, we spoke earlier this month, and the entire conversation is online at WABE.org. But here's a little snippet. Blanks is an Atlanta-based celebrity photographer, director, and a survivor of COVID-19. If I rewind, I would most definitely have made a mask or done something. Uh, but I tried to be as cautious as possible as far as washing my hands and mm. things like that, things like that, but wasn't good enough. If you're just joining in, I'm joined by Atlanta-based celebrity photographer and director Derek Blanks, and we're talking about from the moment he was diagnosed with COVID-19 to his recovery. Derek, you have a family, you have a wife and a, a, a child. How are they doing? Yes, they're doing good. You know, when I got sick, my wife was like, okay, you need to, at first, with all the media and all that, she was very worried for me coming back from L.A., so as soon as I got a fever, she was like, okay, you need to go to the family room. So not the family room, the guest room. She put you out, Derek. So she put me out. She put me out. And I'm glad she did. Yeah. But uh, fortunately, she was there to kind of make sure I was fed right and isolated. I was completely away from them in the other bedroom, but she made sure I had my food and mm-hmm. kept my son away. And when I got back um, from, I believe I was in my room, they told me to quarantine for another week. Mm-hmm. So I was in there for like, um, it's some particular rule that they, once your fever breaks, you have four days before you can go outside mm-hmm. of your room. So basically in, in that time frame, they waited on me hand and foot. And um, I was very drained. I didn't really have much energy, which is opposite of me because I'm normally working all the time. So I basically slept for like 48 hours mm-hmm. um, or more nonstop. My sleep pattern was off. My days was all mixed up. But um, thank God they were there and helped me through. And all I could do was watch Netflix or the news or whatever. I found out that she may have actually been immune to it that's not proven of course because she's o positive mm-hmm. but they were saying that the o positives have less are they're less likely to catch the virus so that could be possibly why they never got sick mm-hmm. or she never got sick so Derek, who knows 
they could have had it and carried it as well. So yeah. So Derek, total, how many days were you in the hospital? Um, I was in the hospital like four days. And then when you came home, how were you feeling when I you came home? You quarantined for additional. Yep. Like a f- additional four days because I had my fever broke like two days while I was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I felt basically I was very weak and tired, um, but I felt much better. The stomach pains diminished and the chills and the fever diminished. That was probably the most uncomfortable part of the whole situation was the fever and the chills. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I got back, all that was gone. It was just more about getting my appetite back up and building my strength. How you feeling now? I feel great. Um, and of course, I mean, I'm pretty strict on my diet and I eat extremely healthy. So I feel like, and I'm very active. So I feel like that had a big part of it uh, to do with it. Cause honestly I was back at it a week later. I took a week off from after I got sick and then I just, got back to work and working out and eating right and kind of bounced back. I've had, I haven't had any complications or problems since then. So I'm feeling my, I'm feeling back 100%. I honestly. So now you can go hang out with Missy and Brandy again. All the folk. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're not going to be hanging out with me, especially <laughs> Missy. <laughs> You're going to be like, oh, you need to stay home until all this Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Derek, what's the message? Derek, what's the message out there to anyone listening um, who right now may have just found out that they've been diagnosed with COVID-19 or they're in the midst of recovery? What do you want them to know? My message would be just to take it seriously, and that's in all forms, fashion, from what we eat, our health, um, as an African-American, I know we have predisposed illnesses like diabetes and high blood pressure, Mm -hmm. but a lot of that can be controlled by our diet and our eating habits and taking it seriously. Um, And also social distancing and taking that seriously as well and making sure that we wear our masks, wash our hands, be careful as this weather gets warmer, we uh, naturally we want to go out and do things. But I'm not saying to not completely enjoy your life, but just be smart about situations and don't go in large groups and just wear your mask, keep yourself protected. Because even if you don't necessarily um, have any symptoms, you can go to your mom's house, your father's or elderly person and pass it. And they may end up dying or getting ill from it so number one would be take it seriously and and watch our diets in case we do get the virus we can fight it properly you feel like with the fact that you were a pretty healthy eater and you you know took care of your body pretty good you were working out you think that that was a big part of your recovery yes i know for a fact um i know well, all the breathing and the mucus and all that, I know because of my water intake and things like that, I didn't really have the symptoms that other people experience as far as the excess um, buildup of mucus in your lungs and 
all that. And I for sure know for a fact that my recovery time was like increased and my body was able to fight off the virus a lot easier. Um, I hear stories now of other colleagues and clients that are saying they're still having complications from the virus after they've recovered. And it's still like, they're still having issues. Derek, are you still following up with your doctors or do they check in with you? Um, No, I haven't followed up with them. And, you know, I'm due for my, my 40 plus yearly 40 plus um, <laughs> <laughs> you know when you hit a certain age I'm due for that anyway so oh I, I know trust me <laughs> <laughs> the doctors when they let me go they I didn't have to do any follow-up or anything like that and I haven't felt the need to do it but I do know that I need to equally take that seriously too so I'm gonna plan on doing my annual and getting that together, too. All right. Atlanta-based celebrity photographer and director Derek Blanks sharing his story as a COVID-19 survivor. Derek, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you, and we're all glad that you are you have recovered. Okay, thanks for the interview. And, you know, I'm serious now. When you get back out there with Brandy, now Brandy is one of my favorite singers. She, she's not up there with Gladys, but she's one of my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I love Gladys too. I love Gladys. I had the pleasure of working with her too. So, yeah, I did her project maybe about seven years ago. She had an album come out in the video. Mm-hmm. She was just, she was lovely. She is lovely. So, yeah. Best of luck. We're going to keep following your journey. Glad you're okay. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the interview. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.